actually came. I, it's, yeah. And then uh, George himself was deathly ill and doing his level best to die on us when they came again. He about got it done, too. But here he is, what's left of him, and we're thankful for that. So it's, it's good to have George, and it's good to have his daughters here, and to give us some beautiful music to help us think of God. I couldn't help but think, too, that in that particular song, it, the lines start out with, Oh my God, several times there, and I... That is a very common expression in our society today. People are always saying, oh my God. And it's a completely different expression than what we're hearing as a matter of worship out of God's Word. But it is good to have the girls here. and I know it's a big boost and encouragement to George to have them come and visit with him as well. The last week we started into a series of sermons about our enemy, and we saw from Ephesians 6 that we fight not against flesh and blood truly, but against principalities and powers, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and his demons, is where our true enemy lies. Yes, we have human nature, which is diabolical and evil in itself, as Jeremiah 17 and other scriptures point out. But human nature, of and by itself, let's say, has somewhat limited evil. But when Satan is thrown into the mix, it becomes unlimited evil, unmitigated evil, as evil as can be. And we need to understand, in everyday terms, what that means for us. So we'll explore that some more today. I got through Isaiah 14 and that section in it about Satan uh, and how it started. The chapter started out as if it was speaking to a man and then morphed into talking in what could only be understood as Satan himself. And I think that there's a reason for that, and we'll find the same phenomenon in Ezekiel 28, that God starts out speaking to a man and then it turns into, almost seamlessly, talking about Satan himself. I pondered that some over the years. So, you know, why is this seemingly talking to a man, and then suddenly it's talking about Satan? And I began to truly comprehend that when Satan works with people and against people and picks people out of this world to influence heavily, and they happen to be in positions of leadership, he is able to manipulate them. He is able to work on their attitudes, their mentalities, their philosophies. He is able, by his power, as the prince of the power of the air, to broadcast very subtle messages that human nature and human minds pick up on very, very easily and are very adept at. It's so easy to go the way that he leads our minds to operate. And I think that is why God wrote this in the way that he did, so that it's, it's, he's talking to a man, but behind the man really is the devil. 
And then the man becomes so motivated and so controlled by the devil that you're really talking to both. And I think that's really the reason that he wrote it this way. Let's pick it up in Ezekiel 28. It says, The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man. So this is addressed to a man. Say unto the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Eternal God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas. Now, Tyre anciently was set in a, as a sea, uh, perched on the edge of the sea. And I believe modern-day Tyre is really none other than New York, on, on an island off the edge of the east coast of the United States, and the embodiment of almost everything evil that is going on on the earth. Uh, certainly a picture of that. But do not the people in control of the powers of the world today put themselves in the place of God and sit as God. Idol worship. They worship themselves. They do as they please. They subjugate the rest of mankind so that you have ultimately the elites and the peasants with no middle class, which is what is occurring within this nation today. That's what you have. So addressing a man who sits in the seat of God is not uh, a reference specifically to Satan here, but to men who put themselves in the place of God. Their pride, their vanity, their ego, many of them do away with God. Some of them openly worship the devil, for that matter. Yet you are a man, and not God, though you set your heart as the heart of God. So you place yourself, in your own opinion, above God, above His laws, above His statutes, above His ordinances, above His way of life, and you go about building your own society and culture totally apart from God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret they can hide from you. And with our electronic age today, it's getting where nothing anybody does can be hid from the powers that be. They have ways of gleaning information from your phone, from your television, from everything. So they can know any and everything about you. When you get on Facebook or some of these other social things, they have the capacity, the ability, and they do monitor everything you put on there. You cannot hide at all. You think you're just putting it on Facebook to your friends. No, you're putting it on there for any government anywhere to monitor everything you say and do and every picture you put on there. And they do. So... This is truer today of modern Tyre than it was even back when this was written. With your wisdom and with your understanding, you have gotten you riches and have gotten gold and silver into your treasures. Do we not see that in the world today where the big banks and the rulers of this world are getting all the treasure? They're getting all the possessions. And God has told us in Isaiah 5 and other scriptures, Zephaniah that we would build houses and not live in them. 
so they are by mortgage fraud coming to control those houses and kick people out of them. That will continue. If Detroit is bad today, it's just a model of what the way the rest of America will be soon. So they are taking everything to themselves. And where is the center of that? New York and London, within Israel itself. By your great wisdom and by your merchandising or traffic or trade, have you increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches? So billionaires are in control today and they dictate the way society will be, the way commerce will be operated. Six to ten nations, our corporations, control the food supply of the world, the water supply of the world, and on and on it goes. So these human leaders are very selfish and greedy and are accruing to themselves everything possible. Verse 6, Therefore thus says the eternal God, because you have set your heart as the heart of God, putting you, your ways, your desires ahead of God, Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon you, the terrible of the nations. Now, we can read many uh, scriptures about the demise of this nation, as Ephraim, the leader of the nations of Israel. used to think it was Manasseh, I'm convinced, where Ephraim now, we won't go into that, that's an aside. The terrible of the nations will come after us, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom, and they shall defile your brightness. So all this that we think we are, and this American dream we live in, is going away very shortly now. They shall bring you down to the pit, and you shall die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. A sinking ship we are. Will you yet say before him that slays you, I am God, as you're being destroyed? Are you going to get over the illusion that you're here in place of God and are as powerful and above God? Good question. But you shall be a man and no God in the hand of him that slays you. So those you've set yourself up and think you're really important and nothing can touch me, that's not the way it is. Read it in the book of Revelation. They'll go into the caves and the rocks and try to get them to fall on them, to die, because life will be so miserable and intolerable, and they can't find death. But many, many will die, even as those conditions worsen, until it gets to that point. You shall die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken it, says the eternal God. Now he's saying that in remembrance of the fact that he had worked through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and built a nation of Israel. And he had proclaimed that he would be their God if they would be his people. But he understood that they would depart from him. Even as he understood we as a church in the end time would not be what we should be, and have to be chastened and punished and spewed out of his mouth, which has happened to us. So, he says, you'll die as a godless people. Circumcision was a sign between Israel and God. So he said, that sign will no longer be there. 
It won't matter. You will die as if you were uncircumcised, as if God's protection were not there, in other words. And it won't be and is not. You can say, God bless America all you want to, yet today. And it means nothing. Because there is nothing to, for God to bless America for. We're a nation in sin, immorality, hatefulness, bitterness, selfishness, greed, and materiality, and every work of the flesh. And God will not bless that. In fact, God will curse that and is in the process of so doing with droughts and fires and political chicanery and all the things that are going on to bring this nation down to its knees and into the dust. God bless America, you might as well forget. July the 4th was a very sorrowful day for me this year. I realized that that which we had celebrated is gone. It's just gone. There's nothing left to celebrate. Woe, anguish, and sorrow is all that is ahead for this nation until Christ returns. So this is a prophecy here. For the end time. Ezekiel is an end time prophecy. So this is the final demise of Israel in this age. You shall die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken it. In other words, this is something that has been decreed by God because of our national sins and personal sins. Now it changes in verse 11. Moreover, or in addition, in other words... The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Eternal God. So here he addresses the king of Tyre again. He called him the prince of Tyre in one place, and the king of Tyre in another. He calls him the prince of Tyre in verse 2. I, that is referring to the man. But here he addresses a different being and calls him the king, not the prince of Tyre. Here we're going to address the big boss, Satan the devil himself, who is the king of Tyre. He also is called in Scripture the king of pride. If there's anything that he is, it is a king or an overseer or a ruler of pride. So let's see what God has to say now, not to the prince, but to the king of Tyre. Thus says the eternal God, you sealed up the sum, you sealed up the sum. In other words, you add all the numbers, you add all the conditions up, and he who became Satan was the sum, the epitome of greatness of love, of wisdom, of understanding, of worship toward God. He was the bottom line. He was the sum of those saints, full of wisdom. Here was a being before his fall who was absolutely full of wisdom. Knew what to do, when to do it, how to go about it, never to make any mistake, but full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Designed by the God of all the universe, created perfectly beautiful. In character, 
and in transcendence of, shall we say, spiritual or, or physical or spiritual beauty. Wonderful to look at. Wings that outstretched and covered the throne of God. Built as the epitome of virtue and beauty. Couldn't have gotten any better. He was the sum of these things. Now, we don't stop and think of Satan in those terms, do we? But that's what he was. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, the prince of Tyre had never been there, but the king of Tyre had. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of your tabrets and your pipes was prepared in you in the day that you were created. So he was decorated and lived among the most beautiful gemstones on the earth. He sparkled, he shone. His character sparkled and shone, and so did his physical appearance. Couldn't have been more beautiful. Created by the very hand of God. You are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. So you have the translucent pillar, I mean, uh, sea of glass before God's throne, shining like the finest gemstones. And there he dwelt. There he visited. There he was a part of the greatest beauty in the universe. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created. Never a mistake, never a bad thought. Here was a created being of God who had everything you can imagine. Never discouraged, never frustrated, never bitter, never angry. No negative feelings or thoughts. Absolute perfection. From the time you were created, until iniquity was found in you. How could that happen? How could a being created by God and who was at the throne of God and went back and forth from the earth that God had given him to rule, how could he ever have iniquity? How could it be found? Because he was perfect in his ways, perfect in his beauty, undistorted in any way. Can you imagine how that could change? I think I put it in terms of a, a bit of a metaphor in a sermon years ago, where maybe he was returning from the earth, and he came into the throne of God, and he fluttered his wings, and maybe he saw his reflection there in the sea of glass and thought, that was a nice landing. I, I, I did that nicely. And maybe just a little bit, just a touch of pride entered. I'm beautiful. Wow. And then that thought began to grow and to grow and to grow until he began to think, you know, I'm really something. I'm, I'm pretty impressive. 
And he had a third of the angels under his control. He was their leader. And maybe he said to one of the lieutenants there, Hey, did you see that landing I made? Wasn't that nice? God sure made me beautiful. God has given me every blessing there is. God is great. Look at how wonderful a creature he has made me. Do you think he might give God credit for it at first? Oh, yeah. We'll see that in spades here in a little bit. Look what God has made. And then it just escalated. And pretty soon he says, you know, God made you beautiful too. Oh, am I, am I beautiful? You know, there's nothing more lovely, I guess, on this earth than a beautiful woman who doesn't know she is. You've seen people like that. Men too, for that matter. They can be a beautiful human being, and yet they have not themselves discovered it, so they don't have that pride and ego of how good-looking I am that they carry about with a lifted chin or nose or eyebrows. They simply are, but don't really know it. That is a beautiful thing when it happens. But maybe, just maybe, at some point, I don't know exactly how it happened, I'm only speculating here to some degree, but I know he was perfect, and then iniquity was found. It had to start somehow, some way. And there are hints here about how it happened. By the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of you with violence, and you have sinned. Did he become somehow aware of the gems, of the riches, of the gold, of the beauty that was around him? And he began to trade on that. He began to talk to some of the other angels about it that were under his... See, he took advantage of the fact that God had assigned them to him. So they naturally looked up to him as their leader. So he could begin very subtly to approach them about how special they were and how beautiful they were and give God the credit all along. Remember that scripture? Satan's ministers or servants are transformed as angels of light. They can be full of all kinds of malice and bitterness and hate and anger and frustration, and sin, and yet appear as ministers of light, doing good, acting good. Satan can use people like that to appear good, and yet the attitudes underlying are anything but. That's how he works. We need to be very aware of that. So he could appear to those under him to be good, and yet at the same time, his ego and vanity and pride were growing, and he could, even by the way he approached them, give God credit, and at the same time, begin seducing them away from God to follow him. Somehow, that occurred. Therefore I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God. 
Now, he hasn't fully done that as yet. Satan still goes before the throne of God daily as our accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren, the main leading accuser of the brethren. And anybody else who accuses the brethren is a vessel of Satan, because they are doing it Satan's way. Accusers are not godly. Do we understand that? Now, there can be sin. And sin is wrong. And it is not wrong for us to recognize sin if we see it and judge it correctly. But to become an accuser is a satanic attitude. There is a difference between a sin and recognizing a sin, praying for the sinner, loving the sinner, but hating the sin, as God does, and being an accuser of the sinner. Do you see the difference there? God sinners. And he is not an accuser. He is a forgiver. His nature is mercy. His nature is to overlook to hide, to cover, to disassociate from and to get rid of sin in that way. That is his goal, his attitude, and his approach. So he is not, in any sense, an accuser. Satan is the accuser. So sin might either be there or not be. It is not a matter of right or wrong, sin or not sin. It is a matter of an attitude of accusation. It is not a godly trait, in other words. Your heart was lifted up, verse 17, because of your beauty, you have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. So he began to be lifted up in pride and vanity and ego and selfishness. He began to diminish God and look to himself. And this grew and grew until he had a third of the angels completely under his sway and control. And they turned around and attacked the very God who had created them. Tried to take over his throne. Now do you see how we can begin to fantasize in our minds and build up stories that are simply untrue, we can raise ourselves up on our own estimation so very easily. Now, was Satan at the time a wonderful being? Yes, we've seen that. But he began to get a little pride, a little vanity, a little ego, a little selfishness, somewhere in the mix. And then over a period of time, he began to build himself up bigger and bigger and bigger in the fantasy of his own mind. Until he came to the point that he really believed that he was powerful enough, strong enough, important enough that he could take on God the Father and two-thirds of the angels that were left and defeat them. You have got to have 
fantasized an awful lot to come to the point that you have that kind of power. But he did it. In his mind, he was greater than God. I can defeat God and rule the whole universe, was the attitude he came to. Now, that's a lot of pride. That's a lot of ego. It's a lot of vanity. And while this was happening, understand that he was becoming an expert in evil. An expert in hatred. An expert in subversion. And in seducing. And in pulling people away without them even knowing what was happening. I say people, I mean spirit beings, angels. Who, by the way, are a lot smarter than you and I are. And yet he was so subtle and so capable so versed in evil by then that he could, through great subtlety, make people think they were continuing to worship God when they were in fact worshiping him. He's smart. That's what I want to get across here. He knows his business. He knows what he's doing. He subverted one-third of the angels of God and turned them against God, and they didn't even know it until it was too late. And then they became bitter and hateful and angry, and still are. And they hate you and me. They hate all human beings, and they want all humans destroyed. And they're working overtime to get that accomplished. I will cast you to the ground. I will lay you before kings that they may behold you. Is that what he's going to do? When Christ returns, he's going to grab Satan by the collar and bind him a thousand years. Now here is the being who has promulgated himself as the leader of the world, and indeed he has been. And this new world order that is coming rapidly upon us is the new world order of Satan the devil. It will have nothing to do with God. It will be satanic to the core, and some of the very leaders of it as humans today are outright Satan worshippers, and will tell you so. Some are more subtle about it, but they are all worshippers of Satan, whether they know it or not, because of what they're doing, because of their pride, their ego, and their misuse of the power that they do have. That puts them in Satan's corner. You know, the Pharisees didn't realize where they were or what they were. They had no clue what they really were. Do we understand that? They thought we are Abraham's seed. We are the children of God. God looks upon us and loves us. We fast twice in the week. We give alms. We do all these good works. They did... A lot of good things for people. They had all these good things going on all the time that appeared righteous. Service to the widow and the orphan. On and on it went. And you know what Christ said? You are of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, and so are you, hypocrites. Serpents, snakes, 
unwashed cups, inside of mausoleums, on whitened sepulchers, in other words. He let them have it. You think you're circumcised in Abraham and God is your, the one you worship? No. You are of your father, the devil. Now, that's pretty strong language. Pretty strong language. They were not what they appeared to be. And they cheated the widows and the orphans and their own parents, Christ pointed out. So they could appear good, good works. But that's not what the attitude behind it all was. You have defiled your sanctuaries, 18, by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you, it shall devour you, and I'll bring it, or bring you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold you. Now that's got to be metaphoric language there. He won't become ashes specifically, but everything that he stands for is going to burn up and become ash. In other words, everything Satan has produced on this earth is going to be destroyed. And he will be bound. He can't be destroyed because he was created with uh, life eternal or everlasting life. And I see no way that that can be taken away because God gave it to him. Perhaps the only way that he could meet his demise is if he willingly gave up that life. And as bitter and as hateful and as angry as he is, he just can't quite turn loose of the life that he has. The will to live is very strong in human beings, and it's very strong in Satan and his demons as well. Now, eternal life can be voluntarily given up. Christ himself did it and died on the stake. So it can be done. There's precedence for it. But do you think Satan is going to do that? No, there's such a mix there of... Self-love, selfishness, ego, vanity, and pride that he can't turn loose of his life even though he is angry and miserable and bitter. And he would rather live that way than to change or give up life. That's who we're dealing with. And he has power. He subverted the angels. Verse 19, All they that know you among the people shall be astonished at you. You shall be a terror, and never shall you be any more. He's going to be bound a thousand years, and there will be peace on the earth. Human nature will not be nearly so volatile as it is today. He has an incredible impact on human beings. When he's bound a thousand years, there will be peace. And if he wasn't bound, there would never be peace. He will be loosed for a short season at the end of the thousand years. And war will immediately begin. He will subvert the nations of the East just like that. Like you turned on a light switch and come against 
the people of God and try one last time to destroy mankind from off the face of the earth. And he will have raging success in putting together an army of hundreds of millions against God. That's how powerful, how influential he truly is. So when Paul warns us that we fight against principalities and powers on a spiritual level, I want us to understand what that really means. I'm not here to make us afraid. We're to worship God and put our fear in Him, not in the devil. But we also need to understand what it is that we are fighting against and how so easily He can influence us. We'll see more of that later. Let's go to Genesis 3 and begin to see some of that. Here again, as I described the one who became Satan, a covering cherub who had no fault in him, who was perfect in his ways, perfect in his beauty, God had made him that way. Now here we have a beginning, not the beginning, but as Genesis 1-1 says, in a beginning God created. So this is another beginning, another chapter in the history of what has gone on in the past. We're not here to discuss all of that, and to me it doesn't really matter anyway what happened before man as we currently know him came into being. There were beings on this earth, I think it's been clearly proved prior to Adam and Eve and their creation. But that doesn't impact me. What impacts me is what Adam and Eve did and what has transpired since. So, do I need to worry myself very much about what happened prior to that? No, not really. I have to deal with what happened then and since then and what still happens to you and to me. That's what we have to deal with. Chapter 3. Here he has made man, and looked and said, this is good, and he's made woman and says, that's good too, and put them together in a wonderful setting. No flaws, no character issues, no selfishness, no pride, no shame, no vanity, no ego, none of these negative emotions that you and I are very familiar with and observe in ourselves and others daily. They had none of that. No sense of anything evil. They did not know that there was anything but good. They never experienced anything else. Now the serpent was more subtle. Subtle is a very good word. He can appear as things he is not. He can seem to be good when he is evil. And so send his servants or ministers, as I already quoted. More subtle, more conniving, slyer than anything else around. That is mentioned here for a purpose. Because he was there to subvert Adam and Eve. To seduce them away from God. And he was going to appear to be godly. He was going to appear to respect God. He was going to appear perhaps to even worship God. 
But the truth was just the opposite. So he had to be very, very careful how he approached them. Let's see it. He said to the woman. Now why to the woman? He had observed the making of mankind. He had seen Adam created out of red dirt, of which we have some here. And first, then he saw God create a woman, Eve, out of the rib of Adam, and put her secondary in command as a helpmeet for her husband. So he was smart enough to figure out that if she was subservient in that sense to the man and had been created second to man, that she might be an easier target than the first one in control. I don't know what all the reasons were, but I can imagine that some of those thoughts went through his mind. At any rate, he considered her a better target for whatever reasons he had. I'm merely speculating here. God has said, Ah, God was the only authority that these two people knew. They had never met anyone else. So here is some incredible subtlety right off the bat. God said, Oh, God, that, well, we know Him. He comes here. He put us here and... He gave us all these wonderful things. This is a beautiful place, isn't it? Thank you, God. So the very first words out of Satan's mouth were about God. Now, Satan, at this point, hated God. He was angry. He was bitter. He was accusatory toward God. But he appeared as an angel of light to Eve. Did not God say, quoted the highest authority in the universe? Well, she was going to agree with that. He made a true statement, didn't he? Has not God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? She had to agree. Got her saying yes right away. Used car salesmen are the same way. Isn't this a fine looking blue paint? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll... Let's don't talk about the motor yet. Let's talk about the pain. God has said, got her saying yes right away. Agreeing with him. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So she's going to, she's going to amend what he said. He had made a true statement, what God had really said, and she got into the conversation now. See, he drew her out and got her to talk. And now she's going to tell him a little more that God said. I agree with you, God said that. He also said this. Oh, we got a conversation going here now. You know, I just sidled up to you on the bar stool and said, you look lovely today. And you said, oh, that's nice. Thank you for the compliment. Can I buy you a drink now? How about another? See how this goes? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she did not know what die meant. 
She had never experienced anything negative. Now, God had said, you'll die, but she'd never seen anything die, and she'd never experienced any of that. But God had said that, whatever it might have meant. Maybe they had a clue, maybe they didn't. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Now, he did not directly contradict everything God had said. He agreed with her that God had said that, but maybe he was a little mistaken about the die part. It wasn't a very real thing to her anyway. So he used that and says, well, yeah, God said that, but, but let me clue you in, you won't surely die. Oh. For God does know. He goes immediately back to quoting God. You ever seen anybody that can do that? They can be angry and bitter and mean and carnal and selfish and greedy and whatever else the human mind is. And then they can quote you a scripture. Yeah, they can. God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, she had never had vanity or pride or pride in her mind, or her abilities. She just was, and everything was good. But here, he's beginning to say, hey, you could be smarter than you are. You could understand more than you know. He began to try to tweak and generate some vanity, some ego, some pride in mentality and mind. He was an expert by now. He had already deceived and seduced a third of the angels. He was an expert at this. And he knew exactly which buttons to push. Does this sound at all familiar? Do we ever deal? with this in our lives and Satan pushing our buttons I'm taking a little time on this because we need to recognize how he does things how he goes about them how subtle he can be how tricky he is and how he can get your mind going a different direction so fast than where it ought to be Your eyes will be opened. Hey, that sounded good. Don't we like open eyes? Don't we like to see? You'll be able to understand more than you understand now. She says, oh, wow, that sounds good. So he made it sound good. Does the world around us make sin look good? Oh, you bet it does. Sin can be fun. And you know what? Sin can be fun. But it has a repercussion there are penalties that come with it. Did Paul speak of the temporary pleasures of sin? Yes. You can sin and think you're having a real boot full of fun. Until somewhere along the line, it comes back on you. And it will. It just made that way. 
So he convinced her that things were going to be better. You shall be as gods. Well, he had adopted that for himself. I'm going to be like God. In fact, the business, I think I'm going to be better than God. And then he tried to be. And he got cast to the earth and fell as lightning. And then when God created man and woman, he decided, well, there's somebody else I can subvert. I did it with the angels, the third of them. These, ah, here we go. You're my huckleberry. So he came after her. And when the woman saw, maybe she hadn't even paid much attention up to that point, but he pointed it out. The woman saw the tree was good for food, looked good, looked like it would taste good. It was pleasant to the eye, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. So she, he showed her the tree of good and evil. She saw the fruit. She thought it really looked good. And hadn't he said, this is going to make you smarter. Your eyes will be opened. You'll understand better. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband, Dagwood standing behind her, and he did eat. So they both partook. He didn't put up any more uh, objection than she did. I mean, he just immediately followed right along. Whatever you say, dear, looks good to me too. Let's do it. And the eyes of them both were opened. Yes, their eyes were open. Satan was right, wasn't he? Didn't their eyes open? Didn't they understand more than they had before? Oh boy, did they. And they knew that they were naked. Up to that point, no shame. There was no sense, no cognition of nakedness. They just were. They were utterly comfortable in each other's presence and God's presence with no clothes on. Now, if you were laying naked on the bed today, and suddenly Christ appeared, you'd be scrambling for some covers. You would feel very ashamed and feel very, very naked. Now, he can see through covers and pajamas both, but that's not the point. You would feel exposed. And suddenly... They had shame. They had a sense of nakedness, of being without clothes. They'd never seen clothes, didn't know what they were. Gucci's wasn't around. But suddenly they had this sense of nakedness. What do we do? What do we do? We're naked. And they sewed big leaves together and made them aprons. They found some vine, I guess, and grabbed some big leaves and started sewing them together and tried to cover up from each other. Hey, they were married. What's the big deal here? It was the sense of nakedness they'd never experienced. And God might come. Now what do we do? Oh, let's cover up. And they heard the voice of the eternal God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the eternal God among the trees of the garden. They were ashamed. They had become aware of human nature, which they had never experienced before. The feelings of human nature, of inadequacy, of shame, 
of pride, and we'll see other emotions that they learned about as we go on through here. The eternal God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? It wasn't because he didn't know where he was. He knew where he was. But Adam thought he was hid. And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. He had never felt fear before. Fear is a very, very basic human emotion that we have all experienced. But they had never felt fear before. I heard you and I was afraid. What a difference in the mentality, the emotional makeup, the awareness of these people. I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? How do you know you're naked? You never seemed to care before. I came walking in the garden and you just came out, birthday suit and all. Well, they weren't really birthdated, but they were made. Didn't bother you before. What's the problem? Have you eaten of the tree where I commanded you that you should not eat? Oops, now guilt and shame. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So, accusation is added to the list of human emotions. It was her fault. I didn't, I wouldn't have done it. That woman you gave me. A, it was a woman's fault. And B, it was your fault for making that woman and giving her to me. Now, he'd been happy with her up to that point. Deliriously happy. Nothing wrong with that woman. And then suddenly, she was an emissary of Satan the devil. And it was her husband's fault. I mean, it was, in his mind, it was her fault and God's fault. Now, was it? No. It was false accusation. Human beings learn that very, very easily. It's anybody's fault but our fault. This started, this came, can you imagine the scrambling of emotions and feelings that were going through these people's heads? They had never encountered a base negative emotion in their existence. And suddenly, these things were coming at them from every direction, and they were pretty good at it. They were experts almost immediately. Adam didn't say, let me think about this, Lord. We've been doing fine around here, and all of a sudden, there's bitterness and accusation and hatred and bad feelings, and I've got to think about this. No. It was right there. It came so quickly. It's her fault and your fault. I, he, he didn't even stop to think, pause, or anything else. It was just there. How quickly do human emotions like that come on us? How quickly? Yeah, they were experts in Satan's way. Immediately. Almost without... A heartbeat in between. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? So, we already know what his attitude is. It's your fault and my fault. Now let's talk about you for a moment. Talk about me? Oh, let's don't do that. 
What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me and I ate. It wasn't Adam's fault and it wasn't your fault, but the devil made me do it. So they learned that one real fast, too. You know, the devil does have a heavy influence on us as human beings. But at the same time, we can't blame everything on him and say, the devil made me do it, it's not my fault. She came up with that one pretty fast. So they use different excuses, different reasons, and they have different ones they blame. Some blame God, some blame a human being, some blame the devil. And there's some blame that can go to two of those, but not to God. He tempts no man. But Satan does, and our nature does us. So now the devil made me do it. And the eternal God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Now, Satan had already rebelled against God, and he's using a metaphor here of a, of a snake. Snakes have, some of them, fangs. They have poison. They can kill. And Satan certainly had a nasty, vicious, aggressive nature by this point. And he wanted to attack. He wanted to destroy. He was very aggressive about it. So God metaphorically said, you'll crawl on your belly from now on. You will be the lowest of the low. When he said he'd bring him down to dust and to ashes there in Ezekiel, is now this pretty much what is pronounced right here? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be war between Satan and the woman the woman came to be known as the church. The woman will be the bride of Christ. Human beings made God. But there would be enmity and animosity and frustration and war between them from then on. When you're bruising something's head and it's biting your heel, that's war. That's what God is declaring here. There will be war. There will be an awful lot of evil perpetrated. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow shall you bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, he had been the leader and the head when they were created. The, uh, the what's the word I'm looking for? The leader of the two. But here, he was going to rule over her. And throughout most of man's existence on this earth, men have treated women like chattel, like possessions, rarely treating them with true respect as a human being with a mind, but things to be used, abused, gotten rid of, whatever and not treated with respect and dignity and love. And how many women feel, well, you just use me, but you don't think I have a mind. It's like you're in control, and what I say means nothing, redneck. It has been all through history. Women were bought, sold, raped, 
misused, abused, sold like cattle by men. So when it says rule over here, it's more in the, not in the sense of being the leader of two, but an abuser and a misuser of someone who is physically weaker, smaller than a man, and he can dominate and misuse and abuse. That has been going on ever since. And Adam, he said, because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife, not to me, you listened to that woman, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In that garden, there were no weeds, there were no thorns, there were no mosquitoes with proboscis that could stab you. There was nothing that hurt. They could go around perfectly naked. The weather was perfect. They didn't get cold or hot. And nothing bothered them. Life was comfortable. But now, that was all going to change. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust shall you return. This is what I mean by die. It's going to seem like living death, torture in hell, if you will, and then you're going to die. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the eternal God make coats of skins and clothe them. I've always found that interesting. He made them leather clothes. Why? Why not cotton? Why leather? A... They were going to be thrust out of that beautiful garden, and there were going to be thorns and thistles and things that might prick, stick, and hurt all around them. And secondarily, I think there was a lesson here. Adam and Eve, to this point, had never seen death of any kind. They had not seen an animal die. They had not seen a plant die. Everything was alive and vibrant and well and good. Now, if God made coats of skins, did he do it in their presence by taking a lovely animal that was there in the garden, that was peaceful, that they could pet, that they could love and hug, because all animals had that nature? Did God slit the throat of some animals right in their presence, skin them out, and make leather and tell them now where that lamb or whatever it was that he killed. Did he introduce them to death right here on purpose to begin to get them to comprehend what it is that they had done? And what death and destruction can be. I don't know, but he gave them leather from skin. And to get skin, you have to take it off an animal, and it's preferable if the animal be dead when it occurs. So they saw death. 
and they wore death on their bodies. And the eternal God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now, there had been no evil in the universe until that moment when he who became Satan had a little bit of pride, a little bit of ego, a little bit of vanity, which then grew and grew and grew in his mind until he thought he could defeat God. Now, that's an awful lot of self-deception and disillusion. But aren't we deceitful and desperately wicked now? The human mind has gotten to the place that it is so evil. So, God had learned about evil, hadn't he? Once he saw it in Satan, and it grew and grew until hatred and bitterness overtook Satan, and he could not get rid of it. He couldn't repent of it. He couldn't change it. And he became more deeply ensconced in bitterness and hatred until he was consumed of it. And now, he is trying to turn all of us into those attitudes toward each other, toward God, toward everything good. Esau became so bitter at himself, I think, as well as Jacob. Don't you realize that Esau was aware of how cheaply he sold out, how he cheapened himself? He had a lot of self-loathing. It wasn't just Jacob he hated. Esau hated himself. What did I do? I have destroyed my inheritance. So he began to hate his father. He began to hate himself. He became so bitter and full of animosity that he began to treat everybody that way. So that he would marry a woman that his parents didn't want him to marry just in spite. So his bitterness at himself grew. Now he had good reason to hate Jacob because of what Jacob and his mother had done to him. Subterfuge, lying, cheating, selling out cheaper. Yes, there was a mistake on their part. But who did Esau destroy? He destroyed himself. He didn't destroy Jacob. Jacob was alive and well. Jacob went on to produce Israel before God. But Esau destroyed himself. Paul talks about it there in Hebrews. About he sought repentance bitterly and with tears. He cried out to the living God that he could change his hateful, accusatory, bitter attitude toward Jacob. And he could not. And because he couldn't, he destroyed himself. And it may have affected even his very genes to the point that Edom, Esau, is working furiously right now, along with Satan the devil, to destroy the nations of Israel today. And they're going to get the job done. 
the book of Obadiah shows how Esau will triumph over Jacob and they will be deliriously happy. We finally got him! And then God is going to bring down hell on earth upon them because of it. Esau is a good example of how Satan can influence a human being to the point of self-destruction. Self-hatred and self-loathing, and then that loathing is expanded to other people as they come into contact with the one who has it. That's why Paul warns us so dramatically not to be like Esau. Once a root of bitterness starts, it grows like a weed. And it appears there's no stopping it. There was no stopping it with Esau. There's no stopping it with Satan. He is bitter to the very core. And his hatred is not only of God, but his hatred is of every human being on this earth. He loathes us. And he is working with the powers that be among human beings on this earth. Working with them and through them, as Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 show, to destroy us. And some of those people have averred, they have admitted, they have said, in many speeches, if you put them together, over the years, that their goal is to kill 90% of the population of the earth. That is their avowed goal. It is their purpose in life. It's not a conspiracy theory. They've said it openly here and there. What was unleashed here is diabolical. And where did it go once they were kicked out of the garden? The Bible doesn't say much about Adam and Eve's uh, is that clock right? Is it 2.30? God doesn't say much about what happened with Adam and Eve after that. They had some smattering, at least, of understanding of God, because Cain and Abel understood that offerings were to be made and sacrifices to be done. But whether that damage that happened there in that garden was ever mitigated or not, is pretty much silent. But Satan went on from there to create so much havoc and so much violence and so much sin and influence men so badly that the earth was full of violence and it had become so bad that every thought was evil of all men except two or three or four or five righteous ones. Continually evil. That's how much influence he had. And God said, I wish I'd never made man. I'm going to wipe him out. And then because of one man's righteousness, he saved him and his family and started over because he knew he could. And somewhere along the line, things would get better. And he could save us from ourselves and the devil. But since I'm out of time, we'll stop there and pick it up next time.